the glory of the new covenant. Now, in using the word covenant, uh, I don't want to be misunderstood as referring to covenant theology, which is actually a view that's held by some Reformed churches. I am referring very specifically to the new covenant as it is laid out in the scriptures. The new covenant that God said he would write not on tablets of stone, but on the hearts of his people. Made possible only by faith in Christ, as you know, who shed his own blood to atone for the sins of the world. And now that we are under the new covenant, we are not under the penalty of the law. We are now given the opportunity to receive salvation as a free gift of God. And through the life-giving Holy Spirit, who lives in all believers, we can now share in the inheritance of Christ and enjoy a permanent, unbroken relationship with God. Ephesians, or excuse me, Hebrews 9.15 declares, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And so I hope we are all in agreement that this is indeed a glorious truth. There is a glory to the new covenant. It is magnificent. It is awe-inspiring. Now, you've probably heard the expression, drawing a line in the sand, right? You've ever heard that expression before? Drawing a line in the sand. Now, that normally means that you're drawing a boundary line, that a boundary line is laid down, and it's a line that you're not supposed to cross. You know, if you I'm drawing a line here in the sand, that means I'm not going to go any further and, and I'm not going to let you come any further to me. There's a boundary line that's drawn. Now, in the culture that we live in, it is becoming increasingly more and more difficult to keep established lines from being rubbed out. For example, in recent years, we've seen an acceleration of the erosion of morality in our nation. Lines that were once clearly delineated are now much less visible. And that's to be expected as our culture continues to distance itself further and further away from a Judeo-Christian influence. We expect that from a worldly culture. And Christians now are trying to give a little bit of pushback saying we don't, we're, not accept, we're not accepting of this. And that's the world. But what should really be alarming for the Christian church is when individual Christians lose their ability to measure and, dis, and discern the distinctions that our lines in the sand are meant to distinguish. We, we know that the church draws lines in the sand based on biblical essentials, right? I mean, we have what we commonly call the, the essentials of the Christian faith, the non-negotiables, 
hills that we are all willing to die on. Paul the Apostle said of the church in 1 Timothy 3.15, he said, but if I tarry long that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. That's what the church is supposed to be, the pillar and ground of the truth. And in a world of uncertainty, we are the anchor of certainty because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, right? And we are his representatives. So why am I saying all this? Well, something that kind of stirred up my heart a few weeks ago was all of the buzz that surrounded the election of the new pope. Now, ordinarily, I wouldn't have paid a whole lot of attention, a whole lot of attention to that situation. But the thing that took me back was the reaction that came from a number of evangelical leaders who expressed much enthusiasm over the new pope. In fact, there was even an article in Christianity Today. The article was entitled, Why Pope Francis Excites Most Evangelical Leaders. Now, of course, part of the article was about the fact that this, this, this newer pope was, was a little more evangelical friendly. And so that those differences that divided uh, Roman Catholics and evangelical Christians wouldn't be necessarily as contentious in the areas where Catholics and evangelicals serve in that same area, especially in uh, Latin American countries and maybe even over in Europe and, and other places like that. But that wasn't the only reason that some evangelicals were kind of jumping up and down. And I found it to be quite grievous that anyone in the Christian community would show any enthusiasm over the leader of the largest misrepresentation of Christianity in the world today. I found that to be just shocking. But it also showed me that many, perhaps too many, in the Christian community are not very familiar with what the New Testament teaches about the New Covenant. The gospel. I mean, the distinctiveness of the gospel of grace is a line that God himself has drawn in the sand and has told the church of Jesus Christ, you guys stay on this side of the line. This is the line. This is the distinction. This is what you're to embrace and, and you shouldn't let anything else cross that line that's not distinctly what I have laid out for you in the Bible, in the New Testament. I mean, imagine, if you will, the Apostle Paul. Imagine Paul commending the influence of the Judaizers to the Christian community of the first century. Imagine Paul just sort of warming up to that whole idea about the influence of the Judaizers. We're going through, on our Sunday services, we're going through the book of Acts right now. 
And it's a constant war between the Judaizers and the apostles and the New Testament Christians. Imagine the Apostle Paul encouraging the Galatians to accept the Judaizers' message because, well, you know, at least they got it right part of the time. At least they have a zeal for God, right? And that's what he said. Remember in Romans 10, Paul said of the Jews, about the Jews, in Romans 10 too, I testify about them, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And if you don't have God's righteousness, well, you don't have God, right? You can't. Roman Catholicism, Judaism, <clears throat> Islam, and countless other world religions represent works-based religious systems. And they have no compatibility whatsoever with Christianity. You know, it's interesting. Salvation by works is a system that appeals to man's pride and his desire to be in control. I mean, being saved by works appeals to that desire far more than the idea of being saved by faith alone. Also, mankind has an inherent inherent sense of justice. Even the most ardent atheist believes in some type of, of justice and has a sense of right and wrong, even if he has no moral basis for making such judgments. Our inherent sense of right and wrong demands that if we are to be saved, well, then our good works must outweigh our bad works. That's what a lot of people think, right? When, when you perhaps witness to some people, they say, well, I'm basically a good person. Therefore, it's natural that when man creates a religion, <clears throat> it would involve some type of salvation by works. Christianity is the only religion in the world that does not emphasize that. It's antithetical to every other world religion. It stands alone. It's drawn a line in the sand and said, this is the way it is. So today's lesson is going to be a reminder of the glory of the new covenant. It's superiority over the old and superiority over works-based systems is something that is meticulously spelled out in the New Testament. Now, what we're going to cover today, um, I mean, it has a slight apologetic edge to it, but I'm hoping that reviewing some familiar passages, I hope they're all familiar to you, will actually give us a renewed sense of awe for the truth of the New Covenant. A very, the, the very simple message of Ephesians 2, which, which says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let's open up our Bibles, and let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
Now, I have to do things a little bit differently here because this pulpit's different than mine. <clears throat> Normally, my notes are up here and my Bible's here, but now my notes are down here and my Bible's up here. So hopefully, this thing isn't going to go onto the floor. So if it does, I'll have to run down and get it real quick. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> This is some real important stuff. <clears throat> now, one of the things that Paul accomplishes in this chapter is showing the sharp contrast between the old, the old covenant, and the new covenant. He demonstrates in this chapter that the old is a a faded glory. It is a glory. There's a glory to it, but it's a faded glory. And the new covenant is a light that now shines brightly. It is a much greater glory. And we're actually coming into this sort of in mid-thought, proceeding from chapter 2. But here in chapter 3, Paul introduces the concept which is foundational to his whole concept of ministry. And that's the new covenant. Paul will explain here that he needs no letters of recommendation to demonstrate his apostolic call. The transformation God has worked within the Corinthians themselves makes them living letters, proof of the new covenant quality of Paul's service. And that's how he begins chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves or need we as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? He says, you are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read of all men. For as much as you are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart. I mean, remember the tablets in the Old Testament, written by the finger of God, but on stone. <clears throat> Here Paul says, we have a new type of thing going on now. That word has been etched on your hearts. It's been internalized. He continues, verse 4. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. Who also has made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Stopping there for a moment, <clears throat> Paul says, there's no sufficiency in me. All our sufficiency comes from God. And then in verse 6, he makes reference to the letter, the letter that kills. The letter here refers to the law of Moses, and the Spirit refers to the gospel of the grace of God. And when Paul says that the letter kills, he is speaking of the ministry of the law. The law condemns all 
who failed to keep its holy precepts. We know that by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. And Galatians 3.10 says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You see, God never intended the law to be the means of giving life. Rather, it was designed to bring the knowledge of sin and to convict of sin. The new covenant here is referred to as, it's called spirit. And it represents the spiritual fulfillment of the types and shadows of the old covenant. What the law demanded, but could never produce, produce is now affected by the gospel. All the types and the shadows have been fulfilled and the law itself has been fulfilled in our Savior. And now that law is being lived out practically in those that God has written that law on their hearts. And that's the church. That's us. Then he says in verse 7, But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious or more glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more does the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excels. For if, the, for if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remains is glorious. Now, again, this is referring to the fact that there was a glory in the Old Testament, but not like in the New. And in fact, I'll expound on that a little bit more later on. So <clears throat> kind of holding off on that for a moment, let's go ahead and read on. Verse 12. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, who put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away, in the reading of the Old Testament. Boy, did we see that when we were over in Israel. I mean, it's amazing over there. You got the Bible everywhere. I mean, they're selling Christian trinkets everywhere. And yet, when we would, and we spent some time talking to some of the, some of the locals, some of the Jewish men, and you could see, you could detect very plainly the veil over their eyes. In fact, it was surprising that many of them didn't even, some of the ones that we talked to didn't, weren't even that familiar with messianic prophecies. Remember that, Russ? It was, I mean, we were just like, wow. The, there it is, in, in vivid display, the veil covering their eyes. And yet it says, <clears throat> nevertheless, well, verse 15, meeting unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart, verse 16, nevertheless, when it, when the heart, shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. 
The veil will be taken away. The obscurity will be gone. Then the truth dawns that all the types and the shadows of the law find their fulfillment in God's beloved son, the Messiah of Israel. But only when the heart turns to the Lord and receives his salvation. And then, of course, verse 17 and 18. Now the Lord is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. And so you guys know, as new covenant believers, we have this sweet liberty to approach the throne of grace. To behold, by faith, the face of our Lord, being transformed by his presence into a new being. This marvelous transforming process takes place, it says, from glory to glory. That is, from one degree of glory to another. It's not a matter of instant change. There's no experience in the Christian life that will reproduce his image in a moment. It's a process. It's a process, not a crisis. It's not like the fading glory of the law, but an ever-increasing glory. And the power of this wonderful process is the Holy Spirit of God. And as we behold the Lord of glory, as we study Him, as we contemplate Him, as we gaze on Him adoringly, the Spirit of the Lord works in our life the marvelous miracle of increasing conformity to Christ. Think about that. I mean, that's what happens. When we spend time, somebody was talking about their devotional in the prayer today, talking about their devotional time, spending time reading something that morning in their Bible, and the transforming effect of that. That's what it means to be beholding Him. Every time you open your Bible and spend time with God, you're beholding the Lord. And I know that most of you know that. And so consider then the transcendent glory of the new covenant. Whereas only one man had the glory on his face in the old covenant, today it is the blood-brought privilege of every child of God. Also, instead of merely reflecting the glory of God on our faces, we all in the new covenant are actually being transformed into the same image, it says, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Whereas Moses' face reflected glory, our faces radiate glory from the inside. And this transformation, marked by increasingly clear Reflection through the believer's life of the splendor of Christ himself is the mark of the new covenant ministry. 
when Paul talked to the Galatians about Christ being in you, the hope of glory. I mean, that is just an amazing thing that the Holy Spirit has now come to reside within us. And rather than than the law of God being something that is external to us, it is now written on our hearts and we are transformed by God's power in our lives. And I want to tell you that what I'm saying right now and what we just read is in total opposition to what Romanism does for its adherents. No matter how much of the God language is used by works-based systems, they miss, completely miss, what we're looking at in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. They miss it by infinity. Isn't that amazing? What God has done. Let's follow this a little bit further. Let's turn to the right to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I was actually, we were reading through this chapter in our family devotion, and uh, I realized as we were reading through the part that we're going to read right now, hey, that's what I want to share in Richmond. After exhortations to holiness, without which no man will see the Lord, the topic in chapter 12 turns to another example of the old covenant glory being compared to the new covenant glory. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is a warning to Jewish Christians about turning away from the glory of the new in order to return to the shadows and types of the old. I mean, it is amazing to think about the fact that Christians, because of their own, the Jewish Christians, because of their own uh, background in Judaism, that they would suddenly, once they found Christ, want to revert back to those shadows and types. In fact, the Bible calls that apostasy. It it is not turning to something deeper at all. It's digressing in their spirituality. The scene that we're about to look at, I probably should turn there too. The scene that we're about to look at, of course, is uh, the first scene we're about to look at is the scene of Mount Sinai. As you know, that was a, a, a literal, tangible mountain that was on fire. And that's where we come to right now in chapter 12, starting at verse 18. Sometimes it's hard to pick it up in the middle of chapters like this because, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a flow here and we're kind of jumping in midstream, but you'll, you'll, we'll pick it up. Verse 18. What does he say here? He says, For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor into, unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the words should not be spoken to them any more. 
For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Now, when you read through that, you know, I can't help it. I always think about the scene in the movie, The Ten Commandments. You remember when Moses went up onto the mount and there was that ominous scene where Moses was told to take his shoes off. You know, and the children of Israel, they're down at the base of the mountain. They're looking up and they see the fire. They see the the fire that has descended upon the mountain. And there's no doubt that scene was so glorious. And, And the Lord warned, don't let anybody get near the mount. Don't let anybody even touch it. If so much as an animal touches the mount, it'll be smitten on the spot because of the holiness of God. And you look at a scene like that, and some of you young people that are here, if you're, because our imaginations, you know, we're thinking, well, man, if anything would show me how awesome God was, it would be looking at God on the mount with the fire and that whole visible scene that would just, you're thinking, well, that would shake you to the core. If anything would cause me to believe more in God, it would be seeing something like that. And and there was a glory in that. But there's a greater glory now. Verse 12. For you, he says in verse 18, you haven't come into the mountain, and he gives a description of the mount, but you, verse 22, are coming to Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. Excuse me. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to the judge of all, and to the saints of just men made perfect. Let's stop there for just a moment. Stop and think about this now. We've moved away from Sinai now, and now we're beholding something that the writer here is saying is more glorious than that mount because it's not something that takes place on earth. This is something that takes place in heaven. There's no shadow in types here. This is the literal presence of God. And so what does this say about our relationship with God? Now, if we're not thinking rightly, we, we might be tempted to think when we think about some of the Old Testament saints, Moses, David, name them, whichever one, Noah, Malachi, run down a list of the Old Testament saints, Daniel, especially the ones that really saw amazing things, Ezekiel. But you do know that as New Testament believers, we have a greater revelation of God than they do? Do you know that? I mean, stop and think about the fact that we have a completed Bible. They didn't. We have the Holy Spirit residing in us. I mean, the differences are vast, and that's one of the reasons why the writer here is making this contrast to Jewish Christians. Lest they attempt to revert back to something, to a glory that is no longer the type of glory that they may have imagined. The glory now is greater. 
You guys have come into Mount Zion, verse 22, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We talk about coming to the throne of grace. We come into a greater presence of God, greater than that which manifests itself at Mount Sinai. I know it's hard for us to believe, but it, by faith, it really is true. And then verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. I mean, stop and think about this. What does that say? What kind of a testimony does that give us about the church? How great is the church? The church is the body of Christ. And think about all of the indifference that we have, all the the lethargy sometimes in our hearts about the church, about attending church. Wouldn't this be a great time to give a message about church attendance? I mean, think about it. When we think about what the church is, and I know it's not, just necess- it's not necessarily just the, the orga- organizational aspect of the church. It's the fact that people now belong to God, and those are the people that are the church. But when we look at even the organizational aspect of the church, the fact that when the church assembles, the power that's there. Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 11 tells us? talks about, you know, the whole thing with the women and the men and the angels being present. I mean, uh, not taking communion lightly. You know, some have prematurely died. Some have been smitten sick because of their, their lack of comprehension for what's really going on when the church assembles. I mean, think about the opportunities that we have to see our own fellowship empowered by God when we miss opportunities to assemble, when we miss opportunities to serve together. We can never, ever be indifferent to the church of God because it's through the church that God speaks to us, the church assembling, we, we see God moving among us as we interact with each other. There's the gifts of the Spirit. The assembly is a real big thing. It really is. And I'm not just saying that because it's a pastor. You get that from reading the New Testament. There's no question about it. Well, it continues on, verse 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, And to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. We know that Abel was innocent. Innocent blood was shed as he was slain by Cain. But to talk about innocent blood, the blood of Jesus was innocent blood. Completely innocent. Perfect blood. Well, since we have been made aware of all of this, and it's interesting that the brother read from Hebrews 2 uh, during the, the, the prayer time because Hebrews 2 is also a, a sort of a, an exhortation, a warning about reverting and not uh, taking seriously the, the grace of God, misusing the grace of God, the, the, the need to not neglect the grace of God. We need to take heed to verse 25 here. See that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escape not who refused him that spoke on earth, 
much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaks from heaven. Now we think about that ominous scene there in Exodus with God on the Mount Sinai, on Mount Sinai and the, the holiness of God and the power of God manifest there. And we think, whoa, that was a scene. Watch out. God is on the move. Take heed. Husbands and wives, don't, don't come, don't bond with your mate during this time. The law is about to be given. Very serious thing. And think about the fact that that was God coming down speaking from earth. But now Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's enthroned at the right hand of the Father. We go into the literal presence of God by faith in Christ. God is speaking to us now from heaven from his abode. How much more should we walk carefully knowing what we have been given as the new covenant people of God? Shouldn't we be all the more cautious, all the more careful? Not not fearing his wrath per se, but certainly having that sense that new covenant sense of what that new covenant means as being God's new covenant people. He says in verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made. That those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now, you guys know that we now are in a kingdom that cannot be moved, cannot be shaken. Jesus Christ said that the gates of hell could not prevail against the church. We stand on a bedrock that is unmovable. One day, God is going to literally shake this earth, isn't he? During the tribulation, the earth is going to shake, rattle, and roll. But those who belong to the kingdom of God, his new covenant people, will not be shaken eternally, will not be shaken. We may live in a world that's shaken a little bit. But we adhere to a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Wherefore, verse 28, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for we must never forget that our God is his consuming fire. Now, that's one of the reasons why it it just alarmed me so much, going back to what I said earlier, about thinking about a religious system that taints the pure gospel, that really is strange fire. It really is. It's strange fire. And the very fact that evangelicals 
would offer any support for that religious system shows a complete ignorance of what the new covenant stands for. And I don't know if that offends anybody here or not, but it's an absolute ignorance concerning the new covenant. When we consider some of what we've just read, works-based systems, why would we want to go into something that God's wrath abides on? Because it's not something that God can accept because he can only accept what was accomplished purely and undefiled in an undefiled way through his own son. And that perfect righteousness that Jesus Christ demonstrated, that perfect righteousness is that very righteousness that the New Testament Romans 4, 5, 3, 4, and 5 teaches that perfect righteousness has been imputed to us, credited to our account. And that's the only reason why we can stand before a holy God pleasing in His sight is because of Jesus. And when you think about that, and you think about how amazing that is, we sing that song, Amazing Love, How Can It Be? You know, you might... You, my king, would die for me. And some of the songs we sang today along the very same lines. So let me ask you this. Are you holding fast to this truth? Are you holding fast to the grace of God in your life? Think about the fact that as new covenant people, think about why it is we have apathy in our lives toward the things of God. When such an amazing work has been done on the inside. As we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, there's a process that began when you became born again. A transformation immediately took place in your life and God wants to bring you and I to that place where we are growing glory, taking each step from a lesser glory to a greater glory as we are becoming more conformed to the image of Christ as we go along. And we have this, that whole scenario laid out in Hebrews 12. No longer a mountain here on earth, trembling and shaking, but now a, a, a hill in Zion, heavenly hill. New Jerusalem, if you will. A place where God abides and a place where you and I can go straight to the throne of grace to find the grace to help in our time of need. It's a glorious new covenant. And it's the new covenant that will truly transform our lives and make us more like Christ. And I would hope that's something that all of us want. In fact, real quickly, just to kind of wrap things up here, turn with me to Romans chapter 10. Just a quick reminder, just in case there's someone here that doesn't know. 
Going back to what I said earlier about Israel. Remember in Romans 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. For Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man that does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaks on this wise, Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what does it say? That the word is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach, which is this. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says that whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Aren't you glad about that? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now is that the message that we bring to people? Is that what we're encouraging people? Is that the message we're pressing upon the lost as we witness to them? Don't ever tell people to, to fix themselves up before coming to God. Just tell them to repent and turn to God, be willing to do whatever He tells them to do. But get them to turn to God by faith alone in Christ. And for those of us who know the Lord, we have a responsibility to embrace everything that God wants for the church. I was reading to my children the other night in Hebrews 13, where it talks about obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch over your souls as they that must give an account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. You know, when there's a call here, when the, when the leadership here has a call, hey guys, let's get behind this and let's accomplish this, that, or the other thing. The church has a responsibility to respond to that. We all do. Because all of us are under the authority of Christ. He's the, up, the, the great shepherd of the sheep. And he's called many, many people to be his under shepherds, to lead the church, to lead the flock. Yes, there is a pecking order. And, the glory, and there's glory in that. And when the church submits itself to that, there's fire in the people. There's light in the eyes. And so I want to encourage all of you today to serve the Lord, love His church, love the new covenant, 
memorize verses that emphasize the distinctiveness of the new covenant. Get to know those verses. Familiarize yourself with that. Draw a line in the sand. Reject anything outside of it. And seek to bring those people inside where the Lord can actually save them. Amen? Musicians, if you guys want to come on up and close us in a song. And I want to thank you all so much for allowing me to come and share my heart with you today. And I just pray that as we close things out right now, that however the Lord stirred your soul today, now we have a responsibility to, to act upon that which God has moved our hearts to do. And that's what repentance is all about, isn't it? We hear, we're stirred, and now we have to put some feet to it and act upon it. So I don't even want to try to put into your minds what the Lord may want to do in your hearts. I want the Spirit to speak to every one of us and just say, Lord, I want to embrace my role as a new covenant saint and Lord, I want to serve in that capacity with all my heart. So as we close with a song, uh, let's just open our hearts to the Lord and what he wants to do in these closing moments together. Amen.